Hey, this is Brian with Mid-City Vineyard. Mid-City Vineyard Church is located in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana. We worship on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you anytime that you are able to make it. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, check us out on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard, Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard, and online, midcityvineyard.org. Last couple of weeks, we've been in a series entitled Living into Freedom, and this week, we talked about grace in suffering and what it looks like to actually uh, press into trials and tests and difficulties and suffering in our lives and actually seeing what it might look like to not only uh, accept those things, but maybe even consent to those trials and those difficulties, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, looking for ways that God might be forming us and shaping us and using even those difficult experiences in our lives. So I hope you enjoy. Much peace to you. So tonight we're going to, uh, we have a couple of uh, different uh, passages that we will we will probably uh, look at this evening and use, but our primary text is going to be James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Super popular text that you uh, are you might be familiar with, uh, where James says, "Consider it now a gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides." And that's why it's such a popular verse because it's so ludicrous. Consider it a gift when tests and challenges come at you from every angle. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and it shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. But let it do its work so that you can become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. So, Lord, we again thank you that you are with us. And tonight as we're looking into the scriptures, we're talking about uh, this, this idea of living into freedom. You know, last week we were talking about being free, to, and, and we, we grow in that by learning to love and accept ourselves as Christ loves and accepts us. And tonight as we look at tests and trials and suffering and these kinds of things, Lord, would you, whatever needs to resonate with our hearts, would you cause it to do so? And we welcome you here, Spirit of God. Amen. So one of the things we talk about often here at Mid-City Vineyard is what it looks like to actually be a mature Christian. And I really sense, you know, when we planted the church from the very beginning, the, the thought for, for me was uh, in a church that I am going to pastor, I really feel like my ultimate goal, a lot like what Paul talks about in Colossians 1.28, is that, uh, that, that we would see our church and see the people in our community of faith and in our community come to a place of being ultimately mature in Christ. I, I'm not really after helping people, and, and I think you, need, you know this by now, and if you don't, you need to know this, but I'm not really interested, per se, in, in helping people chase, like, super high experiences with God and, 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 and find lots of lovey-dovey feelings and those kinds of things. I mean, I think that's all part of, you know, uh, it comes with the territory of, of uh, uh, pressing into the divine. But ultimately, what I really desire to see is people that are firmly grounded, that, are, that, that have their feet firmly grounded in the gospel. People that understand and start to move in a way that every women wave doesn't knock us over. People who are able to actually come against things in life and not necessarily 
need someone to teach them how do I get through this, but they've become so mature in Christ that they are able to navigate with the, with the love and support of one or two friends along the way in their community of faith how to work through life and to, to, to get through and to get on with the things that God has called us to, how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. A mature Christian is one who has learned how to think rightly about God, but more importantly than thinking rightly about God, a mature Christian is one who is learning how to live rightly with God, one who is learning how to actually think with God, one who has been so firmly grounded in love and acceptance of the divine that they live rightly with others, they live rightly with themselves, which is what we talked about last week, and they live rightly with God once again. In Colossians 1.28, here's how Paul writes it again. Remember, he says, The mystery in a nutshell is just this. Christ is in you. There it is. The mystery in a nutshell is that Christ is in you. You have the life of Christ in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of the message. We preach Christ, Paul says, warning people not to add to Christ. It's not Christ and something. It's, it's Christ in us. Paul says we teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. It is Christ, no more, no less. And that's what Paul says. I'm working so hard day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy that God has given me. That is where we look tonight. What does it look like in our times of difficulty, in our times of suffering, in our times of trials, in our times of challenge? What does this look like for the maturing process? Because there is this fundamental truth in this world that we are all quite aware of, and that is that difficulty is going to come our way, right? I mean, we get it. We get it. We don't really need a message or a teaching, or we don't need anyone to convince us that difficulty and trials come our way. The question is, as Christians, what does it look like to respond to difficulties? What does it look like to respond in a Jesus style? What is the Jesus way of pressing in? Now, here's the thing. We've all heard the stories that difficulties make people stronger. Difficulties and trials and tests make people stronger. Now, there is a flip side to that. Difficulties and trials and tests also send people off the rails. Would you agree with that? So it's not just true, oh, okay, it's a difficulty, I'm going to be stronger. No, difficulties, trials, tests, absolutely suffering has the ability to derail us. And I would say that as the people of God, there must be something that God has to say about how we would not be derailed. If there's anything really, if there's any substance to the Christian faith, if there's any substance to the divine. But we understand, we, we know the scripts that, oh yeah, difficulty makes people stronger, or, or working through trials makes people wiser, or working through hardship makes people more compassionate, possibly. I think of, uh, and this is about to come up again because, and I don't know why, he's the first person when I think about these things that comes to my mind. But for whatever reason, it's uh, Jimmy Graham, the tight end for, uh, he now plays for the Seattle Seahawks. Boo. But he played for the Saints when we won the Super Bowl. And I remember that when Jimmy Graham uh, was playing for the Saints, and no, not when we won the Super Bowl. It was right after we won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Jimmy Graham, that was his first year. 
Anyway, let's do this. I remember, I remember this. Jimmy Graham was an amazing, amazing tight end. And one of the things is that he didn't actually play football in college. He actually played, or he, he did play both, I think, but he played basketball in college. He was known for his basketball skills. But none of that has anything to do with the story. What Jimmy Graham <laughs> was known for and what the, what the articles were about and what the ESPN specials were about were all about the difficult life that Jimmy Graham had growing up. How Jimmy Graham was in, um, he, his, his father was not uh, involved at all in his life. His mother was barely involved in his life. And it was as a teenager that he was going to a church. And there was a woman there who became a mentor to Jimmy Graham. And she took him in. And she actually cared for him like a mother would. And, and his life was just, it was a series of difficulty after difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And then, you know, ESPN, when they do these specials, it's all about how he overcame all of this adversity to become this amazing Football player. Okay. And now the Super Bowl is next week. You're going to see story after story after story. And we like these kinds of stories. These style of stories inspire us. They get us moving. They're kind of like, yeah, okay. That, that we root for, for, the, for the little guy, although Jimmy wasn't a very little guy. But we hear these stories, and they kind of help us think through and, 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 and possibly figure out ways to navigate through life. But then there are other stories that I think are much deeper and much richer than how someone overcame adversity to become a multi-million dollar athlete. Those are the kinds of stories that when you read biographies or autobiographies of, of people who were in Auschwitz or the concentration camps or, or went through the Holocaust and came out on the other side and, and they were better people because of it. Or you read their journal entries and you see how they maneuvered through those kinds of times and those things. And I read this story two weeks ago of this woman by the name of Ellie, or I'm sorry, Eddie, Eddie Hillisom, who actually died in Auschwitz in 1943. I'm going to read this story again because it was printed in 1981, her diary called Interrupted Life, and she tells this story when she was in a concentration camp. She says, the barbed wire is more a question of attitude. Us, behind barbed wire, one of the old gentlemen in the camp once said to me with a melancholy wave of his hand, us behind the barbed wire? They're the ones who live behind barbed wire, he said, as he pointed to the tall villas that stand like sentries on the, the other side of the fence. And then Eddie said, if you have a rich interior life, there probably isn't all that much difference between the inside and the outside of the prison camp. Now that is an attitude that overcomes adversity, that overcomes suffering, that overcomes difficulty in some way that she takes this passage from James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, it says in some versions. Consider it pure joy when you experience trials and tribulations of all kinds. And I don't know that we will ever experience anything to the degree of a concentration camp. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that I won't. And so we, we take that and we say, but yet she did. So how did she grow in this? Because for me, when things come against me, I kind of lose my sanity. I succumb to the anxiety. I'm kind of crushed under the weight at times. So how do we regain perspective? How do we grow in this maturity? John 10, 10, where Jesus says, listen, it is for freedom that I came. You know, I want to give you life. I want to give it to you too. The full. I want you to experience freedom in your life. And so that's why last week we talked about self-acceptance. We talked about and we started there with moving into what does it look like 
to actually live a life where we have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove, a, a life where there is interior freedom, the experience that we can love and accept ourselves, even in the midst of being changed along the way. Tonight, what about when trials and suffering and just difficult crap comes our way? What, is it, what does it look like? And I, I've been thinking on this one. You know, it's, it's, this, it's this thought that you could be anywhere tonight and be having difficulty in your life. Because ultimately, we categorize things that are difficult as negative things that are happening in our lives. We find something negative that's rubbing up against us, and that is, and we'll classify that tonight for the purpose of this, as difficult. Obviously, some things are much more difficult than others. But your current lack of money could be proving to be very difficult. A child that has gone astray, maybe an older child that's gone astray, would prove to be quite difficult emotionally, physically, mentally. A job that's sucking the life out of you. A friend who is wrongfully accusing you. Uh, finding yourself having to eat expenses that aren't your fault. I mean, any of these things could be considered real trials, sufferings, difficulties. It could be something like that, or it could be something that you would consider much deeper, much heavier. And I'm not really trying to give this evening any kind of hocus-pocus way of, of pretending your way through it, or faking your way through it, or smiling your way through it, or, or, or uh, pretending like you have an attitude that you don't have. I want us to really find what, what, could, what could real, true freedom look like. So first, two thoughts on suffering that I want to give to you briefly. The first, uh, because people have different ideas on suffering. The first thought is that suffering is something that is actually caused by God. I'm going to give you both thoughts. You can pick the one that you want to, you want to believe. But theologically, there are really two main thoughts when it comes to suffering. The first is that there are people who theologically believe, doctrinally think, that God, they can grab it from the scripture, that God is the one who causes suffering in a person's life. Or that God is the one who tests a person in their life or brings about these trials. And they would use passages, uh, and I understand these passages, things like uh, Genesis 22.1, where God actually, where the, the passage, not so much God per se, but the passage, let me read this to you. Genesis 22.1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. I could understand how one's thinking would be that God is the one that does the testing. Uh, and he said to Abraham, listen, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, the one that you've prayed for for 90 years. I'm ad living here. Uh, the one that you love more than anything else. And I want you to kill him. Literally, I, God, want you to give a child sacrifice to me uh, on the mountain that I show you. I added some verbiage there. But that's basically what Jesus or what God is saying. So there's that passage, there's the passage in Job where, that people read and say, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so we, people uh, glean from that that it, it must obviously then be God that gives good things and it must be God that takes away stuff, you know. So God helped us to get pregnant with this child and, you know, we had a miscarriage, so it must have been God who took it away and that's God's prerogative because that's how God can be. I think that makes God rather vindictive and uh, um, not so awesome, but that's that's where some people come at. Um, and then, of course, the, the passage in James, consider it pure joy when tests and trials and challenges come at you from all sides. These are, these are some of the verses that many will use to say, I, I, you know, I believe God causes suffering, causes tests. Uh, 
I personally can't get behind that. Maybe we could do a whole series on that. Uh, there's another side to it. There's another theological approach that suffering is a fact of life. Live in a fallen world. And that God doesn't cause it, but God absolutely uses it. I think there can be an incredible case made by life, by tradition, by scripture, and by experience that sees that God is not the originator of chaos, but God is actually the one that brings calm and peace and order to and out of chaos. That God is the one, just as in Genesis chapter 1, when it says all, the, all was chaos and God is the one who came and breathed life and order and peace. And the truth is, Romans 8.28 is that God can and God does promise that God will work things for good for those who love Him. I think that there, it's a more biblical understanding that God does not cause suffering, that God does not inflict tests or trials. And just to go back, just so you're aware, um, I think that we could take that Genesis passage with Abraham and I think we could dive into it learn a little bit more about how the scripture was written, how to interpret scripture to really come to a place that, that God's not the one in that sense who actually tested Abraham. That in the book of Job, when it says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, that Job actually that was being written and Job himself had very bad theology. And Job did have very bad theology. And that's what God corrects him for at the end of the book. When God comes around, he says, where were you? Where were you? All this time you've been barking and you've been, you've been representing, but you've been misrepresenting me. You've been misrepresenting me the whole time. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm like. So for the purposes of, of, of this tonight and where, where, where I personally stand, and you can, you can, you can disagree. That's, that's okay. That's, that's what makes us a fun and beautiful community. But God is the one who does not cause it, but God is the one who promises to work good in it. So what might it look like to be formed? What might it look like to be formed in the midst of suffering? One of my favorite authors, a man by the name of Richard Rohr, who is a Catholic priest and mystic, he says, success has nothing, has absolutely nothing to teach you spiritually after the age of 30. After the age of 30, success just feels good. That's it. Everything that you learn at my age, Rohr's age, who is 75, he says, is by failure, humiliation, and suffering. When things fall apart, disillusion is the only thing that allows the soul to go to a deeper place. Because ultimately, test, trial, suffering, difficulty, these are the things, these are the only things that are strong enough to actually break down our control systems our logical paradigms, our desire to be in charge, and our actual, our carefully maintained sense of being in control. You don't believe me? Find someone who is an alcoholic who has been in recovery for some time. The first thing that had to happen was they had to come to a place where they said, I don't have power over this. And when you say, I don't have power over this, what you are saying is, I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. This thing is, is stronger than me. And I, I, I recognize. And now I can start to move in healing and growth and find that 
place of, of, of sobriety. And it's not, uh, you know, for someone who was an alcoholic, it's not, well, I'm going to just decide to be sober and now everything's easy from here on out. I mean, people who are in recovery and go to their meetings and do their thing because they're part of a community and they fight for this every single day of their lives. I think the most beautiful thing in the world is that we recognize maybe I'm not in control because control is an illusion. It's an illusion that we have come up with. When it comes to suffering, here's something else for us. You don't have to take it all. You don't have to take it all, take it all, take it all. But also, when it comes to suffering and trials, you don't need to have this overarching sense that you have to block it entirely. Because pain brings about the gift of vulnerability. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to experience change. Sometimes the suffering, the vulnerability, it pushes us out of our comfort zone. We have this idea that suffering is always bad. Trials are always bad. Tests are always bad. Difficulties are always bad. The reason we think that is because they are painful. And I know that. I agree with that. And yet at the same time, is it possible that the Spirit of God is doing something in the midst of that? And how might it look for us to cooperate with what God is doing? Because in accepting suffering, we begin, we come to a place where we can find new strength. In accepting suffering, we find that God actually is faithful. Have you ever gone through something in your life Wishing it would go away, wishing it would go away, wishing it would go away. It never did, only to realize that you actually did come out on the other side. And then you looked back and said, oh yeah, I, I see now. Right? Of course. I mean, we, we know that. We, we have survived trials. We have survived tests. We have survived difficulties. Some of us, uh, much, which would seem much more difficult than others. But the truth is, when it's your difficulty, it's the worst thing going on, period. You don't need someone else to say... Oh, yeah, well, this is what I'm going through. I mean, we can all admit that mine's much worse. No, you don't need that. Yours is the worst. I mean, it just is. Author Jacques Philippe says, Suffering should be remedied whenever possible, but it is a part of life, and attempting to get rid of it completely means suppressing your life. It means refusing to live, and ultimately it is a rejection of beauty and goodness in your life that life can bring. When faced with daily suffering and tiredness, we should not spend time cursing interiorly or telling ourselves we can't wait till it's over or dreaming of a different life. This attitude sets us firmly. Oh, says life is good and beautiful just as it is, including its burden of suffering. And this attitude will set us firmly within the reality and conserves energy otherwise wasted on complaining. Wishing things were different. Dreaming of an impossible world. Do you know anyone who just complains all the time? All the time. You know somebody, huh, Cameron? Do you see him in this room? No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but listen and what's the thing someone who complains all the time you know what it doesn't take it, it's only taken me a very short time in my life to recognize that person complains all the time I don't want to be like that person and there's this thing 
that when stuff in our lives is not going, there is an alternative to complaining. There is an alternative to wishing life different. There is an alternative. There is a way to conserve our energy and to push it towards something good in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Because difficulty creates space for us to learn and to grow, to ebb and to flow. So what, how might we learn to cooperate? The first thing is that we would not limit ourselves to accepting things grudgingly. Remember, we talked uh, two weeks ago about our options. We can rebel, we can resign, or we can consent. We can rebel against the stuff we hate in ourselves. We can resign ourselves to it that, oh, this is just the way I am. Or we can, cons- can consent to it in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And these are very different. Same with suffering. You can rebel against the suffering, which, by the way, just so you know, is only going to add to the suffering. You can resign yourself to it. Oh, woe is me. This is just how my life is. Which is basically giving yourself to it grudgingly, or you can consent to it. Okay. It is what it is. It is here. And you know what? I will move into this. I hate it, but I will move into this in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, consenting to this, in a sense, almost choosing to walk through this with an attitude of the heart that just continually says, I trust faith, hope, and love, we talked about two weeks ago, that God is present, God is good, God is working. In John 18, Jesus says, listen, the Father loves me. Because I freely lay my life down. No one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. And that's where you kind of want to go. I call BS. Because Jesus got his life taken away from him. He really did. Jesus didn't beat himself. Jesus didn't nail himself to the cross. Roman soldiers did that. Religious high priest arrested him. And yet, Jesus' attitude, his interior life, his interior attitude was like, yeah, I know, I see all that, but I'm giving myself to this. I'm giving myself to the process. I'm giving myself to God in the process. And so to choose here is a free act where we don't only resign ourselves, but Jesus to the place where he welcomed the situation. It matures us. It trains us when we welcomely Welcomely, when we welcome trustingly and peacefully what God can and will do in this. And here's what it ultimately comes down to it ultimately comes down to trust. It really does. Do we trust? Do we trust God? Do we trust what God can do? Do we trust what God is doing? We come back to this place of living in reality, knowing that, listen, here it is. I'm on, this, I'm, I'm on the planet. I'm in the midst of the community. I would like for life to just kind of go super cool, but it doesn't. And so what does it look like that I would really turn my eyes and heart to God and say, I trust you. I trust you. This looks, it's dim. These waves seem to be crashing in. 
And what I need is grace, the empowering presence of God, to be everything that you've called me to be, to do everything that you've called me to do. And I continue to come back and I place my trust here. The only security in this life lies in the certainty that God is faithful, that God is good, and that God will not abandon us. Those are promises that we see throughout the scripture. And as you follow Jesus, those are the promises that you experience in your life. And the, the need to understand everything that's happening, to fix everything that's happening, to, 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 to weasel our way out of every trial or every test, the need of, to do all these things, it's simply an expression of our inability to abandon ourselves to trusting God with our lives. So in John 10, 18, I mean, ultimately what Jesus shows us is, listen, I think he could have he read it out like James wrote it. He says, listen, this stuff, consider it, just consider it part of the growing curve. You want to mature. You want to grow. You want to develop. You want to have deep roots. You don't want to be a, a, a mile wide and an inch deep in your life, of, uh, in your spiritual life, in your life in general. I'd much rather be just a little bit wide and really deep. But the only way we really get there, and we know it to be true, is to work through and process with and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Human freedom does not confer the power to change everything, but it does empower us to give meaning to everything. We have the ability to give meaning to what we're going through. And this quote, I love what Philippe says, he says, we're not always masters of the unfolding of our lives, but we can always be masters of the meaning we give them. Can't be a master of the unfolding of your life. You don't have that kind of control. You don't have that kind of sway. You don't have that kind of power. But with the Spirit, you do have the ability to give meaning to even those things in your life. So tonight, well, let me, let me finish with this story. When I, I told you last week that... Uh, I was talking to you about the depression that I uh, struggle with and the, the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs. I told you about the conversation with my spiritual director where my spiritual director said, you know, maybe it's just about time that you finally just start to realize this is how you are. Uh, God loves you. God accepts you. God doesn't seem to be uh, setting you free from this. So what are you going to do with it? You remember that story from last week. Earlier, because I meet with my spiritual director every month and we, you know, we talked about my depression for about three straight years because I, I couldn't get any relief. And so in, a, in another conversation, an earlier conversation, uh, I was moaning and groaning and crying, literally crying. And I, I remember I was sitting on my back porch. Uh, we, we were, uh, this particular meeting was over Skype. And my spiritual director looks at me as I'm sitting on my back porch and he says, you know, Brian, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You want it gone. He says, but I'm really curious. We've been having this conversation for about two and a half years now. I would like to know, in the midst of this depression, in the midst of not being able to, to work through this and, and to, to really see um, yourself getting better, I want to know how this being depressed, how this depression has impacted how you interact with other people. I'm just curious. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that I just, I looked straight at him and I said, you know, the one thing that this has done is that it has taught me how to relate to people. 
It has taught me how to actually pastor people. It has taught me how to come in, in conversation and come into relationship with people who, who are going through anything, anything in their life, and to be able to actually have empathy and sympathy and to love and to, to give to others in the midst of their, their pain. And you guys kind of remember last week's response is similar to that. My spiritual director looks at me and he says, that seems really good. I don't know if it's good. Hung up. And had been processing. This was about five, five years ago. And just think about, well, wait a minute. If that's something that's happening, maybe that means that God is doing something. I mean, because if I really felt, which I did at the time, I do now, if I really felt that God had called me, put something on me to pastor, it seems like it would be a good idea to be able to pastor. And I realized I had been a, I had been a pastor. At that time, I had been a pastor for 14 years in title. That was my title for 14 years. It wasn't until that time that I actually began to learn and experience and know what a pastor does, what a pastor feels, how a pastor lives, how a pastor relates. So for us, here's what I would encourage you. First, recognize the difficulties in your life. Step one, that's pretty easy. <laughs> Take an inventory. Identify the difficulties in your life. The second thing I would encourage you, and I, it's on your outline, I encourage you this week. Determine where you are on the rebel, resign, consent scale. Where are you with those things? Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your job, it's your finances, whatever it might be. Where are you on the scale of I'm rebelling against this, I'm resigning myself to this, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to cooperate and I'm moving towards consent? And then the third thing would be meditate on consenting to and trusting the divine in this situation. What would that look like in your life? What would that look like? What's the Holy Spirit inviting you into there.